Welcome to Retell Me, a podcast where we explore fairy tales and why we think they could save the world. The tale of a place is the tale of its water. From the Old Drift by Namwale Serpel. Anna, welcome to the water episode. Amanda, we're finally here. We're finally here. And by finally, I mean starting with this because we knew we'd end up here eventually anyway. We might as well just jump in. Har, har, har. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, there's going to be puns. I don't have enough coffee. <laughs> and I am so excited to talk about water with you. Um, I feel like we've we've talked about it briefly in are like episode zero that for me Moana was my first like entry into like a really rich fairy tale story that gave me a lot of room to like analyze um and so water feels like a really natural place for me to start but why does water feel like such a natural place for you to start how how much how long are these episodes again um (laughs) Water was the natural place for me to want to start because it's it's always been the natural place for me. Water is my element. Um, it is my probably first love. Um, I grew up playing in the ocean, and um, even now, when things are in a state of upheaval in my life, usually someone um, around me who loves me will offer to take me to the water. Like it still happens. Um, It's just been such a source of both fascination and also um, comfort, danger, interest, excitement, like all of those things for me. It is, it is the place that I feel myself called to, feel myself drawn to, and just feel myself utterly in love with, enamored with, fascinated by. So when you said, I really want to talk about Moana, I was like, okay, cool, great. I can, I can work with that. I mean, it's, it's kind of where the cosmos started. So, I mean, why, why, why not start there too, right? Okay, so Anna, what does water mean? Like, we're going to be spending this episode talking about why, like, how and why water shows up in some of our favorite fairy tales. And then wh- who cares? Like, what is water? in these stories telling us that can save us. And so we see water show up in all kinds of fairy tales and in all kinds of stories. The first thing that comes to my mind is mermaid stories. Um, We grew up, we're the little mermaid generation. We are, proudly so. My kids are are now the Luca generation. Um, That makes me so happy. It does, it makes me so happy too. Um, When we talk about water in fairy tales, we, we see lots of different kinds of water. We see the ocean, we see rivers, um, we see healing springs, things like that. So I'm, I would love to start talking about water as ocean. There's a lot there. <laughs> the ocean is really a symbol of the subconscious mind oftentimes. Um, it's filled with Fear, danger, death, it stirs unspoken longings. Um, If you are staring off at the horizon, you're usually dreaming of far off shores or distant lands. Um, 
it's a symbol of catharsis. You know, we have the flood mythologies where um, gods uh, send floods to cleanse the earth, usually when humanity has reached either overpopulation or the point where they need to be wiped out uh, so the gods can start over. Um, the ocean is majestic. It's a regenerative or creative force. It can be the realm of the gods. Um, and it was a source of life for a lot of people, especially in the times when a lot of these mythologies and folklores were coming into being, right? So it was um, a source of escape. Uh, you know, for a lot before there were circuses, where did you run away to? You ran away to see like, oh, that was it. That was the only option you had a lot of times to, to get away and start a new life was to go out on a boat. And you didn't necessarily know if you'd reach anything, right? There's, there's, it, the sea has always been a major part of life on earth around our globe. Um, and still, we know more about deep space than we know about our own ocean. I think it's fascinating in doing research for this episode. It's the statistics vary, but it's somewhere between 80 and 95% of the ocean is unmapped and unseen. Um, And yeah, it's just bananas to me that we know so much. I mean, just like you said, we know so much about outer space. We know so much about the cosmos and planets and all of this stuff. And right here on this planet are mysteries that we can't even fathom. And so I think like you've been saying that that lends itself to a lot of wonder, but also to a lot of fear, to a lot of mystery. And so for the ocean to be this boundary line that so often in stories we can't cross, we're not allowed to cross. Um, You know, I think of Luca and the Little Mermaid and Moana, like this is a boundary that you cannot that you, you know, if you're a mermaid, you can't go to, to land. Um, if you're Moana, you can't, you, you're stuck on land, you can't go to the ocean. And so, yeah, I think distilling that into Mm -hmm. a really, I, I think, I think it's a really effective symbol. Oh, ocean is boundary. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's, It can be clear as glass and you can see down to the bottom and see all these, you know, amazing, colorful things. And then it can be dark and deep and, you know, haunting. Um, And there can be places with unexplainable mysteries in it or, you know, mysteries that we were unexplainable once and we choose to sort of let remain unexplainable. Um, Or, you know, places that science says they've explained and we all kind of look at them and go, but but really, like, have you really figured out the Bermuda Triangle? Like, have you though? Um, And it's because, you know, folklore really was the way that meaning was conveyed once upon a time, especially um, in earlier times when most people couldn't read or write. Uh, And a lot of times, stories were passed down as ways of um, explaining things. So for example, um, to sort of tag along on your Moana journey, you know, Maui created the Hawaiian Islands by dragging his fishhook along the seafloor and and bringing up the seafloor. And that's how those islands were created. Yeah, you know, so explaining things, especially around creation, um, because the ocean is the sort of primordial chaos um, you've sort of recently delved a little bit into Norse mythology yourself. So you know how um, 
the ocean is going to factor into some, you know, end times uh, stories and myths that are being foretold. It's in the Christian Bible as well. There's there's threat of the earth sinking into the sea. And I mean, look, uh, here we are. Um, <laughs> but so it, it it explains, you know, where we came from. And then these stories also serve as sort of warnings. So some of the stories about um, water kind of creatures, um, and I'm not saying ocean creatures alone, because this is very true of some of the, the folklore around lakes and rivers and ponds and streams and things that you were mentioning before, served as warning, like to children not to play too close or to, you know, unchaperoned women not to, you know, go out Stay after dark up, or whatever, right. you know, not mm-hmm. to be taken in by a handsome stranger because he might be something sinister that's going to drag you down to the bottom. You know, a lot of these stories sprang up as warnings or as teachable moments, um, or they came about as we have no idea how this vast expanse came to be, and we need to make it understandable for our tiny, puny human brains. And so we're going to tell stories about it. I think it matters. And I think this is going to be a thread that we follow throughout the entirety of this podcast is the stories that we tell matter. The way that we (laughs) make meaning out of our existence, our, you know, the, the meaning of life, um, you know, what, what's the point of all of this, how we got here, all of those things. We carry these creation stories. We carry these these stories that were handed to us as teachable moments. This is how someone like you is expected to behave. This is how someone like you acts in the world. And I think as we go along, you and I are going to find stories where we're probably going to think that they did a really good job of of, of handing us a good story. And then other times where we've been handed not so good stories and harmful stories. And, and we're also going to be coming back to who's telling these stories, mm-hmm. who, who's telling these stories and who is portrayed in these stories and who's missing and who's being harmed in these stories. Um, so we can save that for later on in this conversation too. Cause I know as we talk about mermaids and various yeah. sea creatures, um, ocean creatures, we can, we can get into that a little bit as well. So Anna, one of the ways that we see the ocean show up in stories is we see it as very mysterious, like we've been saying, but also Mm -hmm. as um, a place of isolation. I think of movies like Castaway or stories like Circe by Madeline Miller, where Circe is, Mm -hmm. um, is sent to an island as punishment and this uh, isolation as punishment. And then I think of stories like you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Meg and Jaws. Like we have these like classic ocean monster stories that are their own genre. Um, And so, yeah, why do you think that is? Or what what here feels meaningful for you? This is yet another place where my brain just wants to yell mermaids because um, (laughs) one of the really interesting things that's been coming out of the sort of like continual evolution of the sort of mermaid lore is that killer mermaids are very much becoming not becoming but like are getting a lot of attention as a thing and it's it's glorious to me because it combines a lot of the like 
mermaid lore, but also just quite frankly, some of the lore that we have about the ocean being this sort of dangerous place of isolation as well. Because in a story like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the Meg, what do you have? You have a group of people in a contained space at the bottom of the ocean, right? It's, it's, and they're headed into the unknown and they're seeking knowledge in a lot of ways. I mean, it's the Meg with Jason Statham, but it starts on a research station. Like they are there to do legitimate scientific research. And yes, I did absolutely adore that movie. I will freely state that on this podcast, 100% do recommend, delightful. Um, One of my favorite novels that I've read in the last few years is um, Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant, which basically does the same thing but with killer mermaids in the Mariana Trench, um, which is amazing. And one thing that I uh, have really, really come to appreciate about Mary Grant is that she really does her research because the names of the ships are all like the names of the mermaids throughout the lore across time. So like the name of the ship that goes down that they're uh, looking for is the sort of first mention of a mermaid goddess from Babylonia. And I just love that. Anyway, side note, um, it's this, it, it comes back to, we don't know what's under the water out there. And it kind of ties back into what we were saying about, we know more about space than we know about the ocean. That makes the ocean to me at least, feel even vaster than it is. Like in some ways, looking out at that horizon line for me feels more unknowable than looking up at the sky. And I think it's partly because as humans, we our brains are constantly trying to understand the information we're taking in. And like the ocean is something here and now on our planet, but it's also this entire other world, right? And so... I was always fascinated as a child by um, stories of, you know, bottomless pits where you drop the stone in and you never hear it hit the bottom. And that's what the ocean feels like for me on this planet. Um, For some reason, the sky doesn't have that same kind of wonder. I don't know. I'm, I'm a water girl. I acknowledge this. I, I think you bring up a great point because with space, it's almost too Too far Mm -hmm. it's too far it's too vast our brains can't comprehend it and so we're our brain just kind of shuts down whereas with the ocean because it's here because it is mappable it is knowable and we just haven't yet yeah like you know I think our brains are also working harder to understand it in a way because of it being here you know what I mean it's like we should get it it's right here in front of us that sky's over there it's understandable that we don't get that. It's too far. It's too much for our brains to map. But like, this is right here. We should understand it. Well, and I think that's why ocean as a setting for isolation, like in, in stories like Castaway and Circe, these, these folks aren't sent, you know, jettisoned off into space and to, to feel their isolation there. Because mm-hmm. in some ways, if, if you get lost in space, you're gone. Mm-hmm. And he, if you're lost at sea, there's this, this Hope tiny, back. exactly. There's yeah. this, I should be able to find you, but I can't. And so, you know, there's that suspense. Well, think too about stories of pirates marooning people as punishment. You know, we're not going to execute you. We're just going to stick you on an island with like 
I think it's enough bread and water for a week and a pistol with one shot. I think I can't remember the exact length of time they leave you food and water for, but it's like you get one shot that could be to finish yourself off if you so choose, which granted back in the day when you were hearing stories, you know, um, to die by suicide was considered a mortal sin. Um, so whether or not you as a pirate believe that, Matt, I'll leave that up to you. But like in the minds of the listeners, that's probably something they're factoring in. So there's always this hope, you know, when you're, ca- when you're marooned on an island that you will be able to find a way off that island. And there's all these stories and, you know, sea folklore about like people who were marooned on an island, but then made it off and led the, a new crew to the treasure, you know? So it's like, there is that hope of escape definitely um with that sense of isolation there's a lot of stories uh, in Greek mythology of people being left on islands or being turned into monsters and left in the sea as a form of punishment and isolation a lot of times women mm-hmm. I was just thinking so I rewatched the mist with my husband this week as in preparation for this podcast episode we're talking about all forms of water here guys all, all forms, forms of water and I was like oh the miss and it's one of one of his favorite movies and so we we started re-watching it and I was feeling a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more water imagery like water was really just you know the miss was really just a a setting a mechanism but knowing the ending of that movie and I'm going to spoil it because it's been out for a hundred years so if you haven't seen it pause pause this podcast he has a gun with however many shots left and he kills everybody in his car, including his son, believing that there is no hope left. And moments later. Okay. That is the, that's my favorite version of it. Okay. And moments later, hope, help comes. I was about to say hope comes, but they're both correct. And, and so it's so interesting hearing you talk about being marooned on islands and here's your shot and and seeing that trope play out in the mist in a totally different Mm -hmm. way was not something I had connected until just now there are other um appearances of mist in folklore a lot of times there are you know mysterious water figures that are only seen in mist or um particularly around waterfalls actually Mm. anyway when I was racking my brain for various ocean movies, Master and Commander came up as one. And it's one that I've only seen once, but I believe the whole thing takes place on the boat. There's no other setting in that movie. And it's such an interesting, like claustrophobia kind of movie. Like the cannons are close by, the people are close by, everything just feels enclosed you are 100% correct I'm sorry I'm laughing because when you said that my brain was like yes that's that's a really great example like what other examples of claustrophobia on ships can we come up with and the only one my poor undercaffeinated brain could come up with was the cabin fever song from Muppet Treasure Island that's not in my notes well thank you for bringing this classic Hollywood it has come up and I mean it there's lots of people who get marooned in that one too so we we should have a watch party after this I think as like water episode part two research is what we'll call it and yeah so there definitely there was a lot of claustrophobia that occurred at sea especially in cases like 
in Muppet Treasure Island when you're becalmed. Like that legit, that happened a lot. And cabin fever was a thing. Muppet Treasure Island didn't make it up. And so there's a lot of sea folklore that comes out of sailors telling stories because they are bored and didn't have Netflix to stream or Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi on a boat. So like, I mean, no wonder people saw mermaids, right? If you're a man and you're at sea and you're really far from land, maybe that fish starts looking kind of cute. I don't know. Like, Well, I think this is really interesting because I think this is getting us closer to like, who is telling these stories? Where do these stories come from? Is it men who are telling these stories? Is it um, people in power who are telling stories? Um, And that influences how the story is told. And so I think it's really interesting that mermaids and selkies in a lot of, in a lot of cultures, these creatures are feminine or feminine presenting. And so I'm curious about like our gender non-conforming sea creatures. There are other cultures where there are gender non-conforming sea creatures. Um, Generally speaking, I will say stories of kind of water creatures, particularly anything along the sort of lines of mer something, whether that's like the Russian Rosalka, whether that's Miros, whether there's a surprising amount of like mer people-y folklore um, in Europe. Like it is very Europe-centric and that's not just me speaking from a, you know, white female who has been shoved you know Greek mythology Grimm's fairy tales and like that's about it all my life like um there are some really truly amazing folklores um from across the globe like literally every continent um however the Celts seem to really love seeing things on water. And like, granted, there are a lot of islands out there. Generally, you get a lot of water folklore when you're come from an island culture for obvious reasons. But um, generally speaking, mer creatures fall into some kind of binary. And that is usually because they are presented as sources of temptation for a particular gender, whether that's mermen luring women or mermaids luring men. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. And there's a lot of different, you know, ways we could fall down rabbit trails and I can, you know, (laughs) explore things. But generally speaking, there is some kind of binary. There are examples of particular creatures that are only male. There are examples of certain creatures that are only female. Usually there are various reasons for why that is. For example, there are certain, um, there's an Amazonian tribe of mermaids, for example, that are only women. And it's because they are created from the spirits of particular women who die in particular ways. So for example, like there are, there are ways that certain tribes or groups of creatures come to be that ties very specifically to their genders. Um, there are also creatures, though, that can just shapeshift at will and take whatever form they like. Um, again, usually you'll see that they kind of take some kind of binary, but like if you think about Loki, like Loki, 
I know he's not necessarily a sea creature, but I'm just using him as a, as a more commonly known example of kind of what I'm getting at along the lines of like Odin's horse. Odin's horse was Loki's kid. So Loki, Loki was pregnant with it. But I think that's also a form of Loki that we don't see. And I think that's why retellings are so important. And I think that's one really great example of the stories that we tell matter. And so if we're, if we're changing the story of Loki to make it more palatable, you're teaching kids because these are you know, kid or young adult movies, what is palatable. And it, so it just makes me, it, you, you don't have to have an answer to this. If you do, I would love to hear it. But like in these cultures where there are shape-shifting or non-conform, you know, gender non-conforming or non-binary sea creatures, are those coming from cultures that are more accepting of gender non-conforming people? Um, okay, so this this actually gets us into some really interesting territory because knowing that this was something you and I were going to kind of want to talk about did sort of um, direct some of the research that I did. The short answer to your question is it's complicated. Um, a slightly longer answer to your question is yes, or they would be if religion hadn't messed with things specifically, usually, exactly. So it depends on kind of which culture or, you know, like which culture you're referring to for a particular region. So like in indigenous cultures Mm -hmm. or cultures indigenous to various areas, I'm not just saying indigenous cultures in North America, I'm saying like indigenous cultures everywhere there was colonization, yes is the short answer. Like that is not always true. There's always caveats, blah, 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 fine print. But like, generally speaking, yes, it's when colonizers come in and, uh, you know, take over or instill this very sort of more rigid structure or their own gods or their own binaries or their own understandings of the world and their own folklore, even um, that's, that's where things get taken over. Um, One of my favorite favorite, favorite things that I'm learning and a lot of the research that I'm doing for, and this, this has been true of, you know, my um, applied mythology certificate of the fairy tale analysis certificate that I'm currently working on of just the reading that I've done for pleasure is that indigenous cultures sort of came along like so colonizers came along and were like, you have this. So I'm going to use Easter as an example, right? Okay. So colonizers came along and they're like you have this spring fertility right we can't let you do that we're gonna make it a christian holiday right well indigenous cultures also did the same thing so they would take saints or uh festivals and they would be like yes totally we are celebrating your easter and then still do their damn fertility rights or kind of put their own Um, understanding of their own gods or goddesses sort of under the radar so that they were still able to to worship in uh in ways that were meaningful to them did this change their sort of local understanding of gods yes absolutely things evolve things grow um 
and and but you see this a lot in when colonizers came in and took slaves to uh you know their own countries or other countries to sell them um those gods were brought along with the slaves right and um they so they not only brought their own gods with them but then also when they were told you have to celebrate in this way they found really creative ways sometimes of saying great cool i'll celebrate in this way but i will celebrate my own beliefs i think it's so interesting to hear you talk about within colonization it being among many other things a replacement of story Mm. it's one group coming in and saying I see your stories I can't let you have those stories those stories aren't true here is a new story and so you know to anyone who's like oh stories are fun and they're frilly and they're for children and they're silly and whatever no our stories are deeply meaningful and we have built civilizations and religions and everything stands on story this is just the point in the episode where I want to like bang on the table and be like this is why we're doing this we're doing so from a place of privilege we acknowledge that Mm -hmm. but I I I have I have to yell about it I have to yell about it I just it I'm so angry and I so want to elevate other voices and um, believe you me, there will be a whole list of resources in the show notes for people who want to know more about some specific things, um, as well as some beautiful, beautiful novels that are being written, um, finally sort of uplifting some of these stories and these voices. Um, specifically, there's, good, there's a few novels that have come out about um, some of the water mythology from African cultures. Um, one of one of these novels, Shallow Waters by Anita, I believe it's Kopach, um, which I will link to in the show notes, is about uh, African mermaids and how they are brought by colonizers to uh, the United States and how those beliefs and that mythology takes place alongside the historical record and the underground railroad and slavery and all these kinds of things because this um, well-known sort of African mermaid deity follows a slave ship to America um, and becomes human and lives through that experience. It's just, it's it's extraordinary. And I'm so grateful that the door is sort of being busted open and some of these stories are, are being published um, and elevated and that lets them keep going, you know, that lets them evolve. And so I'm just going to keep yelling about it over here from, I mean, as a, as a chronically ill, semi-abled white woman, I, I feel a little less listened to, well, and as a woman, I feel less listened to than, than I should be as a human being, but like, if I have two inches of privilege, I will use that two inches to yell about other people who don't have those two inches. I'm off my soapbox now. Just kidding. I'm always on my soapbox. We live on our soapboxes. <laughs> it's, just, it's comfortable up here. I've got like a little desk lamp and yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. Um, would you like to know where the first usage of the term the seven seas was? Ooh, yeah. Okay. 
It was in a hymn to a goddess written by the first, the world's first author known by their actual name, who was a woman. Amanda, did you know that the world's first author known by their actual name is a woman? No. Who? I'm going to butcher this and I'm so sorry because we're talking ancient Sumer right now. And so like I should have looked up pronunciation and I didn't. A high priestess of the goddess Inanna, who is like the Sumerian goddess of love, fertility, and war. Yes, please put all those things together. Yes, I adore her. Um, I will tell you the long story of how I came to know that she is a thing uh, through graphic novels um, some other time. But her high priestess, Inhedwana, is the world's first author known by their actual name. And of course, you know, some... Some historians and archaeologists, blah, 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 blah. There's some sort of mystery around who she is, kind of like there is around Homer. Talking about, you know, who's telling the story. Okay, like, let's just not bring up in school that, I mean, I've taken how many literature courses and I didn't know that. So, okay. Anna, one thing that I would love to talk to you about in regards to water And maybe this is particular to the ocean. Ocean as redemption, but also as punishment. Mm -hmm. Most cultures, I believe, have a flood story. We obviously have, I say obviously because it's the one that we grew up with and is mainstream in Western culture, the Abrahamic Noah and the flood story. But there are many indigenous stories around floods um i actually don't know if that's always a form of if that flood is a form of punishment and a form of like starting over do you know generally generally yes um and i will also just one point of clarification noah is not only present in the sort of uh when we're talking about noah being present in the abrahamic tradition what we are referencing is the christian bible the jewish torah and the islamic quran noah is present in all three of those i just wanted to make that point for our listeners and going back to what we were kind of saying about you know colonizers coming along um there are some really interesting sort of localized folkloric add-ons to the Noah story, which I did not know until I was doing research for this episode around flood myths. Um, so for example, in a, in a Russian folk tale, the devil tells Noah's wife to discover the secret of the ark, which she does by, um, it says preparing a strong drink. So I think she gets him drunk. And finds out about the end of the world. And then apparently she's the reason the devil makes it through the flood because he secretes himself in the ark as a mouse. And Noah is also seen in some of the traditional indigenous tales in Western Australia. So it's this, it's this really interesting kind of amalgamation, you know, and then, and also like kind of what we were saying before about, okay, I'll use your stories, but like, um, so just, I, I kind of love that. Um, but yeah, so generally speaking, there are common threads in, uh, in the flood myths that we see across cultures. They are tales of God's punishment for, you know, humanity's errant ways, um, or a 
sort of fix for overpopulation or repopulation. There's a boat or a vessel that saves a few chosen people, which is usually filled with plants or animals and is often a reward for piety or wisdom, interestingly. So it's not always a case of religious piety, um, which I found really interesting. In some flood mythologies, um, the, the person who builds the vessel and usually his wife as well are granted immortality for their faith. One of my favorite iterations comes from Cameroon, um, where the prophecy is given, the prophecy of the flood comes from a goat um, who warns a woman of the flood out of gratitude because she was grinding flour and allowed him to lick up uh, the, some of the flour that she was grinding. So out of gratitude, the goat's like, by the way, <laughs> there's a flood coming. It's going to wipe out um, all of the humans. And, you know, maybe you should know about it. And I'm going to tell you because you were nice to me. And I'm just like, have you ever heard that version of it? No, no, no. I think it's interesting, too, that on the flip side of that coin, there's also we see water as a redemption or as mm -hmm. a, a mechanism of rescue, whether that's a religious idea of baptism or one of my favorite stories. And I did not appreciate it at the time. And I really enjoy it now is the movie Shape of Water and the way that she finds freedom and pleasure and escape in the water. I think one of the opening sequences in that movie is she's having a dream about her apartment being underwater. Um, we see her pleasure herself in her bathtub. Um, and, and as that movie goes on, we see water becoming for both of them this door to freedom. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious about, it's so interesting that water can be both. And I don't, mm -hmm. No, I, I don't have a really academic answer for this, but it feels to me like a unique situation that we can use the same, the same object and have it symbolize opposing things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it goes back a little bit to sort of, there's that kind of primal looking at the horizon. You know, some people probably see something to fear, but some people see an escape. You know, there are different kinds of people in the world. I hadn't quite put two and two together on how many cultures underworlds are actually either at the bottom of the sea or accessed via water. So water also in a lot of mythologies and stories transports us to death purifies us um, or cleanses us via a ritual, you know, like baptism, or um, there are, there are some anointings that are done with water. Um, so you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it is both. It, um, I mean, talking about punishment, you think of, you know, witches who were ducked um, uh, women who were, you know, told like, if you drown, you were innocent, <laughs> but if you float, you're a witch. Like, that's a punishment. Um, but also things like um, there's a lot of stories that where in order to flee uh, a, 
particular type of evil or spirit or other creature, not usually a water creature, um, you would, if you crossed a river, you would be safe because they couldn't cross running water. There's folklore that sprang up from the slave tradition and the Underground Railroad where, because if you made it to certain bodies of water, the dogs could no longer pick up your scent. So you would, you know, walk up the river as a way of throwing, um, throwing people off your trail and folklore sprang up around some of that. So yes, absolutely. Different types of water represent different types of, of freedom. The mythology that came out of that time reminds me of a song that we both love. And I would love to hear you talk about it. I would love to hear you introduce this song to our listeners. Because you introduced it to me. Yes. So what Amanda is referring to is this amazing, amazing, amazing song called The Deep by the group Clipping, um, which it numbers among its members, David Diggs, who was in the original cast of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. Bingo Square. We brought up Hamilton, Amanda. But what this what this song does is it tells the story of a essentially a people, a group of people who were born from pregnant slave women thrown over the sides of slave ships. And one of the moment I knew I was going to fall absolutely in love with this song is that it's like it's it begin it takes us through the whole story and you rise up through the layers of the ocean and the tempo changes and it builds as you go up and up and up and up and basically these these descendants of these slave women um take on a form similar to that of mermaids they um are sea creatures and they basically rise up to wreak vengeance which you are 100 on board for um the course of the song but the line that really got me is um we were born breathing water as we did in the womb it just gave me chills the song is so powerful and um the the group worked in conjunction with a non-binary author river solomon to um write a story kind of it's not 100% the song, but it is at the same time. And so there's a novella out that is actually called The Deep and tells the story of um, a character who is essentially the memory keeper for her people. Um, she inherits their trauma and embodies their trauma so that they don't have to live with it. And she um, runs away essentially because it's too much for her to handle and goes on this, this journey to kind of come to grips with that. And how can, how can her people move forward as the people, if only one person remembers their trauma, it's absolutely stunning. And it is definitely one of uh, the resources that I came here wanting to recommend to people. So thank you, Amanda. Um, yeah. Breathtaking. And it it's one way that some of these folkloric traditions are being, you know, redirected and utilized to, I mean, tell stories of trauma to, to build almost a new folklore, but it's not a new folklore at the same time. And that's exactly what we're kind of here to discuss is, okay, how are people telling these stories now? 
which stories do we want to maybe replace some of these old stories that we've been told with so that we can have a kind of wider view of the world and what can that tell us? In almost every other culture, I just have to say this, in almost every other culture other than Christian mythology and the Greek pantheon, creation and water is 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 women it just it boggles my mind that i was forced to be raised <laughs> hearing this stuff I'm so mad so mad amanda because we lost an oh, a deity that looked like us one of the things that's so fascinating to me about water in particular is that it often comes up as a character and not just as a setting I, oh, Amanda, is this where you're going to talk about Moana? I would love to talk about Moana. Thank Why you for asking. Why don't you talk about it. Moana? <laughs> so I'm just I... going to mute myself. Over. <laughs> so for me, this was an initial, uh, one of the first stories where the water had a personality. The water had a sense of humor. It was kind. It had this intentional movement. It could um, shape itself to be a face hovering above the water, nodding at Moana. Um, it's still perceived her things. Like it brought her things. Yes, it guided it- her by you know creating pathways. It can lift her and put her somewhere. And the chicken. And, and it's still perceived as dangerous. It's still perceived as, as, this, as this boundary not to be crossed. But it, well, actually, though, like, but it blurs those lines. But also, it wasn't, see, I don't think I understood this. I, I rewatched Moana last night in preparation for this recording. And I don't think I caught last time. It wasn't the water that was the barrier. It was the reef. Yes. Which I thought was really fascinating. So it's like, they're not, it was the, it was more conceptual than don't go into the water. It was, we do not pass the reef, which I thought was really interesting. And yes, like the water created storms and stuff like, sorry, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, I feel like there always is a liminal space in these stories. You know, we see people kind of float up to the surface or go closer, but still far enough away. Like there's this, there's this space in the water where you're kind of allowed to be, but not really. And it's crossing that liminal threshold. You know, um, you're allowed to swim, but you're not allowed to go for humans. You're allowed to swim, but you're not allowed to go deep into the ocean. The mermaids are allowed to come up, but not to the surface. Well, and actually, and and thank you for, for bringing up mermaids there. Um, In the original little mermaid story, there is a rite of passage for every mermaid when they, when they turn 15, so young, but anyway, like they are all brought up to the surface. They don't like, get leg get legs and like roam around though I think I've read retellings where that is the case almost like you know the the sort of Amish rite of passage how they send them out into the world and then they make the decision whether to stay or not but they are brought up to the surface of the water and the little mermaid spends her entire life like waiting for that moment where she gets to go up to the surface and that is the time that she sees the prince for the first time which um so 
speaking to that liminal space a little bit. It's, you know, in the original story. That's fascinating. I did not know that. It took me quite a few watches to realize this. The ocean waits until you are sure. The ocean waits until Moana starts to swim after Maui. And then the ocean pushes her the rest of the way. It it drops her back on the boat over and over and over again because Moana's not giving up. So the ocean is not going to let her give up. Um, One of the things that struck me with this rewatch was that when she asks the ocean to take the heart back, it does. It does. And then it brings her grandmother. Yes. As- but it didn't lead, it didn't like push it back to her and bring her grandmother, which I found interesting. She's like, I don't want this. Please choose someone else. And it's like, cool. And then when she changes her mind and decides, no, she does want it. The ocean doesn't bring it to her. Nope. She has to she dive. Has to get it. She has to dive. She has to get it. And she has to swim back to the surface. Mm-hmm. There's no assistance in that. And in this most recent watching, I, I feel like this, this can be a whole conversation about masculine and feminine, but I just had this wondering if, if this binary of land and sea of masculine and feminine these things were separated and they were when Tefiti was violated when she had that heart taken from her it created this this rupture you know Maui doesn't think that she can be the hero because she's a little girl and he patronizes her for most of the movie calls her a little princess says you know we're we're not here because I stole the heart. We're here because the ocean told you you that you were special and you believed it. Like he's incredibly patronizing to this girl. And we see that start to heal as the movie goes on. And ultimately when Tefiti's heart is restored. Can I tell you a story from Mesopotamia? I thought you would never ask. So remember when you asked me, this is relevant, I swear. Do you remember when you asked me if it mattered, if it was salt water or fresh water? Yes. Like when we were first kind of brainstorming for this, um, the answer, the, the short answer to your question is yes. Um, but in Mesopotamia, salt water and fresh water were joined and ruled together at the dawn of time as primeval waters in the cosmic abyss which sounds so much cooler than the spirit of God was moving over the waters, doesn't it? Like, and again, I will probably butcher pronunciation and I'm so sorry, but Tiamat was the saltwater ocean and Apsu was freshwater. Um, So they ruled together. They were joined. Younger gods were born who lived in Tiamat's body. These younger gods made so much noise that it finally angered freshwater Apsu who planned their demise as in so many sort of pantheon creation stories, we see that father plotting the demise of the children situation, right? So two of these younger gods, Marduk and Enki, Enki, by the way, is the God of water. Who's often depicted with a fish's tail killed Apsu in revenge. And a great battle among these gods happened, which ended with Tiamat's death, which symbolizes the new gods overcoming watery chaos at the beginning of time. So Marduk took the two halves. She's literally ripped in two. The ocean, the saltwater ocean is ripped in two. And from that, Marduk creates 
the heavens and the earth from the two halves of her body. So talking about all elements being separate and masculine and feminine, like I think my new favorite creation myth is that the heavens and the earth were formed from the two halves of the feminine ocean's body. I find it's really interesting when looking at how folklore and mythologies evolve in particular cultures to kind of see like, what did the creation of the earth come from? Like what elements were involved? Were those, were those sort of personifications or like, you know, how did they view that sort of primordial chaos? In some of the reading that I was doing, I found it really interesting to kind of notice that like where creation comes from and who is involved lends itself to kind of how some of these relationships and evolutions of, you know, powers or abilities or personifications um, happen or like how that, how that matters in the mythologies. I don't Absol- know if I'm making any sense. Absolutely. Because you and I also both grew up with a story that it was a woman who introduced original sin. Like yes. it was, it was Eve in the garden who listened to the snake, who was responsible for the downfall of everything. And so when you're given, when you're introduced with a story where someone is to blame mm-hmm. and it, she's portrayed as the mother of all creation, that impacts how you feel feel how you are policed how you are um managed in this female body and so i think it's absolutely important i noticed on a recent rewatching of moana that the that maui's hook and tafiti's heart get lost at the same time and it and now maui is stuck on this island Moana is stuck on this island. Her land is landbound, even though she's a voyager. The leadership of her island literally stacks stones to make the island higher. And also the water and the life force is, is poisoned. There are no fish. There's this separation. There's this binary. There's no balance. And it just made me wonder, the symbolism at the end of the movie Moana comes back to her island. She has restored the heart of Tefiti and the ocean brings her a shell and she takes that shell to the top of the mountain and she stacks instead of a stone, she stacks a shell and it's no longer binary. It's no longer land or water. It's this really beautiful symbolism of land and water. And that is the restoration. And I don't know where this is going to fit in, but I just don't feel like I can let this episode go by without talking about the ocean as a portal. I love portal stories. You do? I do. (laughs) Um, That is another bingo square on my portals on my card. I mean, hello. I have an entire Goodreads shelf that's doors and portals. So I think we're well matched. And so I let like, I recently finished ocean at the end of the lane by Neil Gaiman brilliant story love everything about it bingo Um, card Neil Gaiman and that's we see the ocean as a portal um Mm -hmm. the magician's nephew by C.S. Lewis we see water as a portal to 
in the another words between world. the worlds. Mm-hmm. Yes, the forest in between the worlds. Um, Lady in the Water is another great movie as, in terms of ocean as portal. So I just, I don't know where that fits in, um, but that's just a whole another side to water that I just think is so fascinating well it ties back to (laughs) mermaids um it it ties back to some of these stories that I mentioned about like you know um the underworld being at the the bottom of the sea or just other worlds being at the at the bottom of the ocean like one of one of the favorite sort of I don't know call it a conspiracy theory call it what you want to call it but like we we joke about Atlantis, but like, why do we joke about Atlantis and not Troy? First of all, like, I'm sorry. Yes, there's probably more written about Troy, but at the same time, it's a fictional city. I mean, yeah, probably had basis in fact, but maybe Atlantis did too. I don't know. Anyway, I, that's a whole, I won't. Um, but like, there are, but there are so many other examples of lost cities that have been lost to the waves. And like, some of them at least definitely existed. Um, so like there's a lot of precedence for, for bodies of water being portals. I think it's really interesting, Anna, that you bring up Atlantis because in our modern world, looking at climate change, looking at sea levels rising, um, you know, massive glaciers that weren't supposed to melt are melting, are breaking off into the ocean we're looking at, scientifically speaking, coastal cities that will be taken under. Yes, I grew up on the San Andreas fall line. So I've been told my entire life that the place I live is just going to slide off into the water at some point. It's a comforting way to bring up a child. I feel like as our relationship with water changes, whether flooding or glaciers melting, drought, clean water access, the stories that we tell about water are important. Are we talking about water as dangerous? Are we talking about water as life-giving, as elemental? Are we talking about it as something worth saving? Um, Again, like growing up in a Christian tradition where I was told stories that the world will be destroyed, the oceans will disappear, and so therefore it is not worth saving. When we talk about water as domestication, we and we there's stories of, um, or just ideas of okay, well, let's build a pool here, let's dam this river, let's make a koi pond in my yard, let's find ways to tame water to make it calm and safe. It becomes a story of capitalism. It becomes a story of taming wild things of domestication. Um, so when we see water as something that we can own we, or as something that we can manipulate, it loses its life force. It, it is no longer a character that has power and weakness and force and needs. Um, we become, I say we as humans, when we tell these stories where we're controlling water that's a very different narrative than being at what at the mercy of water. I know so much more about the rivers of the world now. And because of that, I feel like I have a greater understanding of what it would mean to lose those rivers, which is exactly what's happening. We pollute them. We, you know, dam them up to build. And then, you know, to your point, sometimes they do find other ways, but sometimes they don't. 
And so we are losing entire species of, you know, different forms of life. There are endangered creatures, some of whom have very specific localized mythology and folklore tied to them, a la the Pink River Dolphin. There's, there's a whole mythology around it. And that is what, why some of these stories are so important is because without these stories, we don't understand why something is sacred. And we don't understand why something is meaningful and how it fits into sort of the larger picture of the world. And that's one of the powers of fairy tales and folklore and mythology and these archetypes is it helps us, you know, as we're staring at the horizon, it helps us understand how some of these pieces fit together. And maybe we don't necessarily believe every single thing we hear, but we understand that someone does and that it is therefore important to someone else. And maybe we shouldn't fuck with it. Absolutely. I think one of the things I really want to drive home in this podcast is the stories we tell matter because the stories we tell become our narrative and we, we choose a life based on the stories that we accept And so if we're only being told certain stories, that's impacting the way that we live our lives. And so if we're being told that water is something to control and to manipulate and to, um, to sell whatever that is going to change, even if it's not something you're consciously walking around with, that is something that's going to impact the way you interact with it. And so the stories we tell matter. The stories that we are being handed matter. If we are only told stories about women being the creators of original sin versus stories of women being deities, that matters. That changes how a woman is given power. That changes how the stories we pursue matter too. The stories that the stories that we actively chase, um, you know, we're looking out at that horizon. Okay. What are we doing about that? Like, are we trying to find out what's over there? Are we trying to find out what's under there? Are we trying to find out what the person next to us sees when they look out at that horizon? Um, if we get on a ship and go somewhere, do we, do we try to find out what that person sees when they look back at where we came from? I'm just like, the more stories I read, the more holes in my own education and understanding of the world that I see. And I now have a whole list of things um, alongside my 19 pages of notes, not part of the 19 pages of notes, but like a whole list of things that I'm now going to go read or try to find out or try to follow up on or ensure that I bring in in future episodes. It's probably inevitable at this point, Amanda, that we're going to have water part two, I would say. Um, Maybe we'll just start every season with a water episode. Welcome back to the water. Um, But like, I'm finding like the more I know, the more I know that I don't know. And so what do I do with that knowledge? Am I trying to hear some of some of what I don't know, or am I just, you know, staying happily ignorant in my own little corner? I'm sure you know the answer to that since I have a reading list, but. Anna, where are we going in our next episode? Our next episode, I believe we're sort of heading off the path into the woods a little bit, aren't we? Yes, we are headed to the forest. Very loud forest. We'll be talking about how the forest shows up in our favorite fairy tales and what the forest is telling us that could save us.
So join us next episode as we head to the forest. I want it noted I'm not bursting into song.